Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Sri Lankan food is kind of powerful and punchy. So, I mean, Sri Lanka was on the spice route for, you know, for many centuries. And it also, it's where cinnamon comes from. It's, uh, we grow cardamom there and black pepper. When you get those things in their, like, original form, they're like, like cardamom that is fresh, it's like menthol, it like blows your head off. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I'm catching up with Cynthia Shamangalingam, the author of Rambutan, which is honestly one of my favorite books of the year. Alex Lau did the photos, and who doesn't love an Alex Lau cookbook? We talk about Sri Lankan cuisine on the episode, and, and I had many questions for her about it, and she answered them all. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Cynthia. Welcome to the Taste Podcast. It's great to be here. I love seeing your face. I love having you here. This is your first podcast. It is my first podcast. Well, welcome to the club. Thank you. Thank you. Tell me about your book. Um, That's a joke because you're... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we were like joking off mic about unprepared podcast hosts, but we are prepared here. Your book, Rambutan, is just... It's truly one of my favorite books of the year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Tell me first... How did you end up writing this book? I know you come from the world of economics and you are in finance. You're an economist, actually, not not in finance. You're an economist. But you wrote a book proposal and started shopping it around on your own. Yeah. Tell us about that. So, so I mean, I haven't been an economist for like 15 years or something. I, it was the first job. That was the first job I did when I came out of university. Um, and I did a bunch of desk jobs I hated for a while. I always say that if you're Sri Lankan, um, doing economics is like doing fine art. It's like the most out there thing you're allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my sister's a doctor and my brother's a computer engineer and like everyone has, you know, sensible, sensible jobs. Um, but I always wanted to start my own thing and do something creative and food became really dominant for me maybe, yeah, seven, eight years ago. And I've been thinking about doing a Sri Lankan restaurant actually for um, for about four years. Mm. Um, and I had just signed on a site in March 2020 when it the world kind of came to an end and it looked like um, maybe restaurants were over. Were they coming back? Was this the new normal? Were we going to always order in, whatever? And mm-hmm. I really thought, should I, should I get up, give up on, on food? Should mm-hmm. I go back and get, you know, go back to my day job, whatever? And, um, and, and my a really good friend said to me, why don't you try doing a book version of, 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 um, of the restaurant, of Rambutan? Mm-hmm. So I, um, I signed up. There were lots of courses. and you know, I don't know if it was the same here, but in London, there were lots of courses at that point. Like everyone was doing an online this or an online Like how that. to write a book? Yeah. Okay. Ha- I, I signed up to like a £10. It's a really good investment. Mm. One of the best investments mm. I've made. You said £10? <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice investment. £10, yeah, thank nice you. Nice return. Yeah, yeah £10 uh, talk on how to do a book deal by my friend Rav Gill, who um, had has written now a few books, and she's um, she's kind of a great champion of people starting books mm-hmm. in, kind of in London. And, um, and that was like, you know, 
know, you write an introduction to your book proposal and write mm-hmm. why this book and what the chapters are and why you, whatever. Um, and so I just followed that. I just wrote a book proposal with those headings. Mm. Um, Any photos in the book proposal? And yeah, I did a trip with uh, a friend who's a, who's an amazing photographer um, a couple of years ago. Um, so I had some photos from that trip of my family mm-hmm. and cooking in the village and of um, Sri Lanka and street food and all sorts of stuff. So I so it, so it looked it looked nice. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody helped me make it, put it into like mm. a like lay it out, make lay it, look it out, pretty. Yeah. yeah. And then I I sat next to um, somebody who worked at Bloomsbury at a party like four years ago, and she was on an email chain, and I was like, "Hey, do you remember me from?" The- no way. So yeah. so you made that connection IRL, and they had seen your proposal, and like, oh yeah, because Sri Lankan cuisine. You now this is leading into my question about the cuisine, mm-hmm. because in um, in America, you know, we don't quite you know understand it writ large as other cuisines. Obviously, in South Asian cuisines like Indian or Pakistani cuisine, we know a little better but in new york we know it because in staten island Mm. there's like three or four great sri lankan restaurants so we like know it's like the only reason to go to staten island is to eat sri lankan cuisine so when you when you were selling this book was there a challenge to get this cuisine into in front of editors and get them excited i think there was a little bit of um I think there's a little bit more awareness in London of Sri Lankan food. Yes. I think partly um, there are just some, there are like three, not that many, but there are like three cool Sri Lankan restaurants in central London. Um, So I would say if you're into food and you're into, you know, whatever, you might have been to one of them. And so there's that much more awareness, I think. Um, And I I sort of feel like after George Floyd was murdered – um, there were this. There was a sort of ripple effect, I think, on lots of different kinds of conversations, and one of them was in publishing and in the world of cookbooks. And I think there had been other cookbooks about Sri Lankan cuisine, um, but some of them had been written by, you know, uh, I guess white British writers who'd gone to Sri Lanka and d- kind of discovered the cuisine, if you, mm. if you like. Um, and I think there was a, a, a kind of moment where um, publishers were interested in people telling their own stories and and kind of food as, as one kind of way of doing that. So I think I just was got a bit lucky in terms of the moment um, and and because it was a story about my cuisine and my family and, 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 um, and being an immigrant, you know, being caught mm-hmm. between two worlds and kind of being an insider and an outsider. Yeah, it's a good point of view. And you uh, lucky maybe your words, but like clearly very well skilled and prepared to, to, to talk to the editor. So take us back to that party. You're sitting next to the editor who's on the email chain. What what goes down after well, that? So, well, so this is, so okay, I was at a party for, kind of for you. I, this is way before I ever thought of doing a book, but I just sat next to um, this this lovely lady. And, and I yeah, I sent the book proposal to her. Um, and said, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, I've got, now got a book proposal. Would you be up for sending it to the person at Bloomsbury who does cookbooks? Mm. Um, and she did. She sent it to Rowan Yap, who um, later became my editor. Oh, and I, wonderful. And then I sent it to somebody else um, who forwarded it to, some, to, to another publisher. I didn't know this, but if you get a meeting with a publisher, they want to do it. Well, you know, it's a good observation. Yes and no, 
but yeah, it, getting a meeting is a great sign. Right. Absolutely. Your agent is going to be excited about a meeting and we, we uh, you know, a meeting is good. So you get right. Well, I didn't have an agent actually. So I just, I just sent it like blind to some published cool. first name dot surname at whatever dot com. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then, then I was like, I should probably get an agent. So I went to some agents and said, cool. oh, I've got a couple of offers. What should I do? Um, and they, yeah. And then they helped me get. Uh, it's a great lesson, I think. For our listeners, when I mean this book is tremendous, and we're going to link to it, you should buy it. Um, when you're an outsider, sometimes it, it's a real strength, right? You you're able to kind of break some rules without even knowing the rules right. existed. And you know the nine essays that you write mm-hmm. are important. Like th- there's a wonderful wealth of recipes and, and head notes are rich, and there's great photography. We'll talk about Alex Lau, your photographer, mm-hmm. my friend. But these nine essays really crystallize a lot of the point of view and a lot of the elements of Sri Lankan cuisine. I have to ask you, you wrote, warning, I have not shied away from the country's often painful history of war, colonial oppression, slavery, spice trading, poverty, and prophesizing in these pages. So why write a warning like that in a cookbook? Like a sort of trigger warning. Um, Is that what it was? Okay, it was a trigger warning, or was it just a warning like, I'm not going to just tell you about how to make this It was both, I think. That's a great question. I think it was both. I think I wanted to... um, I I did, you know, I do want to warn people that it isn't just a straight-up cookbook, and uh, it's full of, you know, memories and stories and whatever, and I know that some people find that annoying, so I wanted it to be, um, oh yeah, I wanted to to kind of um, to be on the front foot about about that. But I also feel like you know, food is political, mm-hmm. and Sri Lanka, Sh- Sri Lanka is an easy an easy place to fall, you know, to fall in love with. It's really beautiful. The food is incredible. The people are really friendly. Um, it's full of like ancient, in- incredible architecture and and and, and history and culture. But it's also a place that will break your heart if you um, get to know it in any in any way. It, it has had um, such a tragic history and, and and continues to be a very dangerous place to live for lots of people, for minorities, for Tamil people like mm-hmm. me and my family, um, for uh, for poor people, especially with the economic crisis right now, for journalists. And I I didn't want to kind of do a sort of um, welcome to Sri Lanka like tourist sort of thing, you know. I, yeah. I'm like the, the 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 history of it and the sadness and the pain of it is all part of it. It's part of the food. It's part of the recipes. Um, and I and I hope that it would give people a more full, you know, understanding of 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 what is of what Sri Lankan food is. If can, I did, can you give us a little bit of a? I know this is a tough, short answer, but about the Tamil culture, about where the Tamil people come from, and how the Tamil people are living in Sri Lanka today. Just for my education, the education of sure. listeners. Sure, sure, yeah. So, um, so, so Sri Lanka is a tiny little island off the south coast of India, and there are kind of there are there are there are actually several different ethnic groups in Sri Lanka, but the two biggest ones are the Sinhalese people, who are the majority, who live in the south um, of the island, the south and the west, and the Tamil people who live in the north and the east. Um, and there's it's it's like 22 kilometers, I think, from the north of of, of Sri Lanka, from from Jaffna to the south of India. Um, and they say that uh, in the ancient Hindu epic. Um, the Ramayana, they say that the great monkey god Hanuman jumped across on a on a series of islands because it was such a short like space um, between the two, 
Um, and there are, uh, you know, there's uh, there's all sorts of different um, and actually quite contested theories on, on the record. But, but I think everyone agrees that Tamil people and Sinhalese people have been on the island for about the same time, probably about 4,000 years. Um, and they were as in many countries around the world they they governed and they were governed um, and they governed themselves in different kinds of kingdoms some that were you know spanned both cultures some that were just their own and it was never a united country until 450 years ago the first european invaders came and they were the portuguese um they took over you know they fought all the different kings of sri lanka and took over uh, in, in pieces and then the Dutch came and then the British came and the British created a united Sri Lanka um, and when they left they ha- they left no sort of protections for Tamil people as a minority and has what's happened in lots of different countries around the world there was a long sad um, and ongoing battle for civil t- war yeah civil war and yeah. for, for Tamil people to have um, to have yeah basic kind of civil rights. Now, when did uh, colonialism end? When was independence? Uh, 1948. 1948. Yeah. Okay. The year after India. Got, yeah. 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 So around that same period. Um, really well. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, that's yeah. that's that's a lot of information about uh, the people of of Sri Lanka, which we don't really get, but we we do get it in your book, though. Of course. Um, I want to know a little bit about the idea of big flavor because you write about big flavor and you talk about your um, country having big flavor. Um, Anyone who's ever been to a restaurant um, has had hopper meal, has had something, you know, has had Sri Lankan cuisine, knows that these flavors are big. But in your words, what do you mean by big flavor? Um, I guess I mean, you, you know, you, it's Sri Lankan food is is kind of powerful and punchy. So, I mean, Sri Lanka was on the spice route for you know for many centuries and it also it's where cinnamon comes from it's uh, we grow cardamom there and black pepper when you get those things in their like original form they're like like cardamom that is fresh it's like menthol it like blows your head off black pepper alone can be can like bring you to tears with how spicy it is um, and then, you know, when the Portuguese came through to Sri Lanka, they brought chilies, which we really embraced mm-hmm. in a big way. So it's often extremely spicy and complex and, that you know, kind of varied. We also um, ferment uh, foods. Mm-hmm. So it has that kind of punchy um, kind of, um, umami quality. Uh, we uh, One big tradition is drying and, and, and smoking fish, dried fish, like they do in Japan. Um, and in lots of other countries in Southeast Asia. So, and that also adds a kind of, um, yeah, it's pungent and strong tasting. Mm-hmm. So um, there's often a riot of like different flavors happening at the table. Um, and I, yeah, I would say it's, it is it is very big flavored. No, place. well said. It really great examples of, of how the, the history and like the territory of being an island informs the cuisine. Where should we start cooking then from Rambutan? Where, where, is there like a recipe or two that really you know, is the one you recommend the most? Um, I feel like the a great starting point is the lemongrass dal recipe. I sort of say this thing in the book, which is that dal is what people tease you. Like people are like, oh, lol, can you... Can you um, can you cook rice? That's sort of an insult. It's a sort of insult. Or can you cook dal? Is similarly like a thing that everyone's supposed to know how to do, and it's very easy. Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't put you off because it's absolutely delicious. Um, and you basically uh, you basically 
you know, boil dal, boil lentils, and you make, and the thing that makes it really exciting is you make a temper, which is where you fry curry leaves or an onions and some whole spices, mustard seeds and some other stuff at the end. And when you pour the hot oil into the um, lentils, it kind of really re-ups on all the flavours that are inside it and, 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 and it kind of gives it a, um, a big kind of punch of flavor yeah tempering is such a cool technique it is so do you have a daba box or a spice box you always cook with yeah yeah exactly so exactly it's such a cool technique Mm. also has lemongrass and pandan leaf if you can get it in Mm -hmm. it so it's you know it's um it's unusual isn't and it's and it's coconut milk based it's not buttery so it's lighter maybe than a south indian doll you might have had before um, and I feel like it sort of sums up what's exciting and different about Sri Lankan. Food. Yeah, and and I feel like reaching out to a Sri Lankan restaurant in your community, they're they're there. I mean, they are. it's not in America. There is a, a a diaspora that is is loud and proud and bold, right? And there's restaurants everywhere. I mean, not everywhere, literally, but many places. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just have to hit Google, right? Totally, yeah. Well, they're there. I mean, I haven't been to Staten Island, but I want to go this time because um, <laughs> I hear that it's full of great restaurants. You should probably eat some pizza, actually. There's some, there's some really good pizza yeah. there. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I'll do both. Do both. Um, now, I want to know a little bit about uh, the, the the actual writing of the book, these nine essays. Um how did you approach um, – because that's a symbolic number mm-hmm. um, that you decided to um, organize the book by this – talk about the symbolic number and what these nine essays represent. So I feel like in Sri Lanka lots of things come in nines. There are nine um, provinces. Um, there, are, uh, there are nine kind of fundamental emotions. If you're Hindu, there are nine – there are a festival of nine nights. Um, nine is a, it's a kind of special symbolic number and um, – and yeah, I, I guess when I was thinking about the book, I really wanted um, I really wanted to to for people to be able to just dive straight into the recipes, you know, to look at it, hopefully a beautiful picture of something and think oh, I want to make that and mm. it looks fun and whatever. But I also wanted to, um, if if people were thinking, hey, how come you? Why do you sometimes fry onions at the beginning and why do you sometimes fry them at the end? Or is this curry exactly the same as two other curries that I made earlier in the book? And is that, you know, if is that the case? Why do you have to have fresh curry leaves and not? Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of explain some of the theory behind and some of the yeah, uh, yeah the thinking behind some of those big kind of... Um, and you couldn't just do it in a 200-word head note. You, ha- you needed to stretch out a bit. That's right. I needed a bit more space. Yeah. And I also feel like I wanted to tell a story about something, you know, a family or um, a Sri Lankan cricketer or... Um, or some racism that my dad experienced when he came to the UK mm. because I feel like it well hopefully it would make the theory stick a bit better yeah. rather than me just saying in a, in, a, in a dry bit of the introduction you must get fresh curry leaves I feel like everyone just ignores that and then doesn't yeah know. we call that like the skip over pages right. you know sometimes in cookbooks you know like just like oh yeah cool cool cool, cool. and then we're gonna get to the essay right totally right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like the eat your vegetable yeah sort of like <laughs> the, the vegetables of the book <laughs> yeah exactly um, and then yeah I think I just wanted to um, have the space to reflect, yeah, reflect, reflect on on the theory, and also tell a story that would hopefully make it, um, yeah, make it more memorable for the reader. What's up with cricket? Are you a fan? I'm actually. I don't actually understand cricket. Okay, thank you. Okay, because <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. I've had so many family members try to explain it to me. I think I've got a sort of sports blindness and I don't really understand <laughs> what's happening. But Sri Lankans are absolutely mad for the game. Yeah, well, for I mean, for the size and the population, it's it, it's a force. And the national cricket, I, I you see, uh, is it called a test? 
Yes, I think, I think so. Sorry, I think British that's listeners. a certain kind of, sorry, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry everybody. Listeners. Sorry, the <laughs> cricket fans out there, we're being, we're being bad. Um, I want to hear a little bit about moving to London, what's good in London right now, and lastly, you're opening a restaurant mm. while on book tour. Mm. Do you advise this for future book uh, authors? I 100% don't recommend doing two, those two things at the same time. It is as uh, hardcore as it sounds. I sort of when I when they both happened, like when I had the opportunity to do the restaurant when the site came through, mm-hmm. I was like, well, I didn't do that much work. Like the first year of the pandemic, I didn't do that much work, so I was like, whatever. Like, maybe I'll just do two years worth of work in one year. <laughs> no, is the answer. That's not a good. Um, that's not a good route to go down. Um, it's yeah, it's very very busy, and everybody is. Um, I think they're jealous and annoyed that I'm not. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're you're in New York and po- doing Exa- podcasts exactly, and having yeah. parties. This is not. This is not. Listen, yeah, no. This is not what I should be doing. Cynthia, you deserve this. Thank you. It's a great book. You deserve you. to be celebrated for it. So. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and then, what did you say? What's good in London? Yeah. Well, backing up a little bit, let's talk about the restaurant. What's the sure. style of restaurant? Is it? Um, going to be is it like fast casual? Do you order it at like a, a, a like a at a counter, or are you? Is it like a full service restaurant? And what are some of the menu items that you're great, doing? Great. Um, so it's in Bar Market, which is uh, like a thousand year old market in London. It's mm. actually, if anyone is old enough to remember this, it's where Jamie Oliver in his first ever show, The Naked Chef, used to like. Um, go down a pole and get onto his Vespa. I recall we had Jamie in the studio oh. maybe six months ago. I did not ask him about the pole, but I do know <laughs> these black and white images of you remember, Jamie. Yeah. 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 Well, so he would go to this market, he'd go to Bar Market and buy his fruit and veg off the market and have a little chat, yes. you know, cheeky chat to the to the vendors. So it's full of amazing produce, yeah. which is, you know, and it's really fun. It's fun to be there. It'll be a 60 cover restaurant over two floors. It'll be, we're cooking on charcoal and, we, and it'll be an open kitchen Kind of as they do. We actually cook on firewood, mostly in Sri Lanka, but it's the same spirit of, of that. Um, and it will be kind of what I hope will be all the best elements about village Sri Lankan cooking um, in the heart of Borough Market. At the design of the restaurant's important to me. It's not a colonial restaurant. There are a bunch of restaurants in London that are um, that are kind of inspired by or that anchored era. In that era. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a weird choice to, 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 yeah. to make. Yeah. Um, so it's a proudly post-colonial restaurant based on um, Sri Lankan's amazing modernist tradition of architecture, um, and it's like a simple, you know, it's a simple small space. It uh, it's going to be sh- sharing like we eat. In yeah, Sri Lanka. you can do live charcoal in a market in like in a big city. That they, they let you do that. They let you do that. I mean, it's an actual restaurant. It's not a like it's not yeah, a stall. Or but anything. here, doing live fire is in New York City is not oh, possible. I see. No, it's we're very allowed. hard to permit that. We're allowed to do Sweet. it. You just have to have a beefy extraction system, mm-hmm. which we. Yeah have what's going to be the dish the dish that people walk away from and say wow and it's called rambutan the restaurant it is yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, what are they gonna say like this is the one great question i don't know i think it could be my start is for 10 r i think it could be um crab fried rice yeah jaffna Crab curry, which is from the north of the city, Jaffna, which is uh, an area in the north of the island, is like famous across the whole country. It's what Antony Bourdain, you know, made in a, on, a, on over a fire when he went came to Sri Lanka. It's like a, it's like a kind of yeah, um, 
iconic dish. And uh, it's quite hard to eat crab and it's sticky, you know. And yeah, it, you mean under the shell? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no so one wants to do that. I'm no, sorry. No one wants to do that. So it's a, so it's a crab fried rice. It's just easier. So it's yeah. a, all mixed up in the crab. And fried rice, Sri Lankans love fried rice. And lots of people outside of Sri Lanka don't know how much we love it. Um, and I feel like it's quite a modern dish. It's quite, you know. Yeah. Kind of, so I think it could be that. Um, and it could be fried chicken, pole sambal sandwich. Whoa, there you go. Fried chicken sandwich. Fried chicken Stop. sandwich. How do you marinate the chicken? I know, like, I love when garlic and coriander come together in fried chicken. That's, I'm not trying to lead the witness. What, what, you, what is your I style? I feel like you've got a conclusion there. Got a conclusion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What are you doing? I'm doing, I, we're doing a buttermilk br- uh, brine with cardamom in it mm-hmm. um, and a little bit of garlic powder actually and then just a simple uh, dredge and, and, we'll fr- and we'll fry it and then um, actually because there's not that much going on I, I mean there is a cardamom going on where there's not that much going on in the chicken because pole sambal is Sri Lanka has lots of different delicious sambals mm-hmm. which are kind of these um, unpickled condiments and side dishes that are on each table delivering like a lot of flavor concentrated flavor mm-hmm. and well, we the, know sambal olek here but that's like not there's like many many more that's types. right that's yeah. right and and we don't have sambal olek but we have a bunch of different ones and the and the sort of king of sambal that i say in the book is is pole sambal or coconut sambal which mm-hmm. is co- freshly grated coconut lime uh, shallots, curry leaves, um, and cumin and some ginger all mashed up together. And it just is like a, an explosion of flavor. And that plus the chicken in a white sandwich, I think could be, could be that the That could one. be the guy. Yeah. Um, we have to talk about Alex Lau. You're a photographer, a friend of mine. He, we were working on a book as well. You get to travel with Alex. I've also gotten to travel with Alex. Did you find him a powerlifting gym in Sri Lanka? Alex was just the loveliest, best best collaborator I could have been for. He's unbelievably professional. He's so fast. I feel like I don't understand. Like, is he doing maths in his head? I don't understand how he's calibrating for light and for everything so quickly. Um, When we shot the book, I wanted to have a photo for every single recipe in the book which everybody told me was impossible because we only had eight days but basically Alex shot like a million photographs a day so it was totally possible it's so possible it's, yeah. come on it's yeah, possible yeah come on exactly come I mean, on that's editors no, it's possible <laughs> that's the the American work ethic but I feel like in London people were like no you oh, never do Cynthia, it oh Cynthia it's definitely the ethic here too they're you know Got to do 10 photos a day no. in a studio. Well, I'm with you. My books that I make are like yours, reportage in this in the field. We're going to Korea in a couple of weeks to do this. It's like you have to be in the field. You do. Real objects, real spices, right? You do, yeah, you do. We actually, we did the, the book shoot in London mm-hmm. and then Alex came out again in December to travel around on a madcap trip. I feel he gets very car sick. Um, which I didn't know. Yeah. And we covered I th- we covered a lot of kilometres mm-hmm. in a very short piece of time because we went right up to the north where my parents are from and to the east and to the south and to the west and to the and to the centre. <laughs> so that was a lot of travelling in five days. But we but yeah, it was it was this wonderful experience to do it with him. So talented. I mean, th- that's the headline. I mean, the the way he shoots uh, is full of life, and your book is full of life. And when I picked it up, honestly, I picked it up and started or the PDF actually so it was, I was clicking around I was like I love these photos I'm really these photos are incredible and I'm like oh my god mm-hmm. we share a photographer mm-hmm. it's Alex wow you have to pick up the book it's I'll link to it in the show notes again Rambutan before we go I have to ask you one question do you watch the show Industry? I do yeah oh so, great let's go there 
Isn't it like the craziest show? It's so good. It's so good. Right. And, You're a fan. And, there and we dark, go. And dark and great. It's so dark. I was talking to Yoda Matalangi last night at an event. Uh, I interviewed him and he was a fan of it as well. It's great. You come from that world? I don't come from that world. No, no. I was a, I was a, I was an, I was an economist for the UK Treasury. So, like, <laughs> it was government, and yeah. it was like a very sort of tame, you know, cups of tea and mm-hmm. whatever. There was no, you know, there was no shouting Ecstasy on the train floor at night, and drugs and yeah, oh my god, no, and definitely for breakfast. No, 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 none <laughs> of that. Um, great show, though, right? Great show. All right, that's our TV minute. Cynthia, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, Cynthia, what would that book be? It's a really good question and difficult to answer. I think it would be about the ta- about like food of the Tamil diaspora, wherever we have settled in the world. There are Tamil people in all sorts of different countries. Like we were taken um, from the south of India as indentured labor to the Caribbean. So there are, you know, there is there are Tamil people in Martinique and in uh, Trinidad and in Fiji, I think, and in mm. and in kind of all sorts of places in the world. And then also more recently, Malaysia, India, Sri Lanka, and then wherever we've settled as immigrants. So like the US and, and the UK and Paris and Australia and I feel like everywhere we go we're doing stuff a little bit differently we've adapted to the local um, flavors so that's what I really like to do can't wait to read that thank you for joining the taste podcast thank you for having me you know I want to jump right into this because this is like really truly an honor had you all in the Taste Podcast. We've, we've had episodes. We'll link to those in the chat. I want to go around and ask each of you, and we'll start with Melissa. Can you give us an example of a holiday cooking disaster averted? <laughs> um, can I tell you about the one that I didn't avert, but that I will avert from now on, and I can tell all of you how not to let it happen? <laughs> all right. So we were invited up to some friends who had um, this like lovely country house. Our kids were all the same age. They were like little kids running around. So just imagine the scene, um, little kids running around. And I decide, oh, this is like such a hot, it's a nice holiday spirit. I'm going to make a flaming punch. And our hosts brought out their most beautiful crystal punch bowl that they got for their wedding. And uh, I proceeded to make a flaming punch not even thinking that actually what happens when you heat alcohol at the top of a bowl that isn't made for flaming punch, um, the whole thing will explode and shatter everywhere, including around the living room where your small children are. So don't do that. Don't ever do that. If you're going to make a flaming punch, you need to use a flame-proof bowl. Um, I have a ceramic bowl that it's a stoneware bowl. That one works. Um, So everybody... Flaming punch is awesome. Don't do it in a glass punch. Don't do it in a glass. Susie, averted, disaster. How did you save save the holidays? (laughs) Well, uh, I I had my mother-in-law here, so um, she helped cook. (laughs) That's always good. That's always good. I don't really remember anything that magnificent, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I have set my towels on fire a couple times on yeah. video, so you know. <laughs> Haven't we all? And then you gotta figure out the smoke alarm while it's still on fire. Gotta yeah. do that one. Yeah. 
Blair, what do you what are you thinking? Is there a moment in your history, in your cooking history, where you were able to save the day? Uh, well, not me personally. There is a there's a famous story in my family about this was uh, like a Thanksgiving like decades ago when my sisters and I were little kids, and my mom put the turkey in the oven, and unbeknownst to anyone in the family, my sister turned the temperature down to the lowest setting. And that like no one, I don't know why no one noticed, but like, you know, they checked the turkey, like however long later. And of course it was like still raw. Um, so I would say, keep your, maybe keep the kids out of the kitchen yeah. um, on that one. And my general approach to averting holiday disasters is like, just order more of everything or go grocery shopping for more of everything than you think you need, because yeah. generally it's stuff you'll use anyway. And like, if you get just the right amount of everything, it's, that's not enough. You, you're always, you know, you, you burn butter or you, you know, something hits like hits on the floor. It's, you're always going to need more than you think yeah. you will. So that, too much is the right amount. I'll stick with you, Claire. I have a question. So you have friends and family. They know that you're uh, an excellent baker, obviously. What is the most requested holiday baking item that you get from friends, family, strangers? Strangers on the subway. You probably get a few too. <laughs> um, so even though it, it's improbable, I do get requests for, for fruitcake. It's a recipe and dessert person, um, which is like an aged fruitcake with the kind of like traditional English method where you bake it and then you... Um, basically like baste it or feed it as they say um, with alcohol you know once a week for several weeks um, even up to a couple months and that has become something that I bring to like a family celebration and so it's it's kind of just expect I don't know if people are requesting because they like it but it's just kind of expected that it will be there um, and I actually have a three-year-old fruitcake that's been like sealed and not cut into that I, I I don't know why I just didn't it didn't get consumed. So I'm going to test it this year and see if it's still good. Um, and if as a backup, I'm going to make a fruitcake. I just had a recipe in the New York Times um, cooking. That's like a, a one day fruitcake. So a much faster. A little bit different. Um, it's like you have a, cake, a, a fruitcake museum in your house. I'm very it's impressed. A museum or, or like fruitcake graveyard, depending mausoleum. on. Mausoleum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, depending on what happens. So I haven't cut into it. I got it out of the cabinet the other day. It looks fine. We'll, we'll see. I just saw on Instagram that you made a wedding cake for a friend for a wedding this weekend, this past weekend. How did that go? That That's very nice of you to do that. You know, it. I was... It was so great and such a pleasure for me for me to be able to do this for such a good friend. Um, and it was a beautiful wedding and it turned out great, but I lost my mind about like eight times during the process. Let's just say that there was a there was a 6:30 a.m. cab ride to the Bronx to pick up dry ice, not from a storefront, but from just the back of a truck, and I paid cash. So it felt In like <laughs> it felt like very, very New York. Um <laughs> there was like a, there was a FedEx overnight shipment. There was a UPS shipment. There was an Airbnb. There was a rental car. There was a lot of stuff, That's but it, it all worked out. Like I was worried that the cakes are going to fall over, but they didn't. Um, You're such a friend. That's <laughs> uh, Susie. Let's. I want you grew up in Port Said, Egypt, and I want to know: Did you grow up? Was there a a, a holiday tradition that you grew up with in Egypt? I I, I want to know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess I did grow up with some tradition. And uh, for us, Christmas in Egypt is actually on January 7th. 
So we, we celebrated the new year first, and then we celebrated Christmas, which was kind of backwards, you know, when I moved here. Uh, so that was a little bit of an adjustment, but uh, our holidays were spent quite a bit in the, you know, and my father was a pastor, so we were at church most of the time. So my mom worked quite a bit ahead on you know, the holiday meal and everything else. But for most of uh, the Christian population in Egypt, uh, you would have fasted for like 43 days before Christmas. Mm. The, the Coptic Orthodox Church, the majority of Christians would have. So on on uh, January 7th, well, I guess at midnight on uh, January 6th, you would eat all all the like the feasty things. Wow. And so that was that was like the moment that was the night people gather together and it would be like right after church at midnight. So imagine having that big meal at midnight. Um so yeah, whether you fasted or not, you did that. <laughs> Which, darn good time. Quite now, fun. You lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, not far from where I grew up. And so you moved from Egypt. Well, you're in Canada before, but then you moved it. Now I'd like to know you. Was there a Midwestern Christmas tradition that was like surprised you living in the Midwest? Uh, it didn't quite surprise. So I went to school in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's how I ended up on in the coldest place on <laughs> earth. So I came from Egypt, you know, with nice warm weather. And then, of course, I lived in Canada and then Grand Rapids for a bit. And where the snow like hits you, you know, well, beyond, your, you know, above your knees sometimes. And my my college friends, they loved to go caroling. Yep. <laughs> they would bring me along and I just could never wrap my head around the whole idea of like walking in the snow and knocking on some stranger's home and singing. And of course I was, you know, I still am tone deaf. So it was all like just a mystery to me why we did that, but it was, it was a fun yep. time. Melissa, you are truly a calming force in the kitchen for many of millions of, of our you know, cooks in the, in the, in the holiday season. So do you, do you stress out yourself? Um, you know, I mean, I stress out the days before, like getting everything ready, getting the lists ready, you know, but on the day I, t I don't on the, the day of the feast, I am very relaxed because it's too late to do anything. And it's just like, you know, I mean, yep. if your soul breaks, it's like, um, what I like to do is I, I, very much get my guests involved. Everybody who comes to my house knows that they're going to be doing some of the cooking, um, especially if they have the uh, the guts to show up a little early because, you know, people are, I'm always like, oh, come early and help. And I will put them to work and they know that, which is great. So when you're cooking together and you've got a big group, there's, it's, it's relaxing because you're with your friends and you don't stress about it because in a way you're all in it together, right? Like if someone else makes a mistake, it, I wouldn't get mad. And so they wouldn't get mad if I made a mistake. So it makes it really nice and communal. And I feel like to me, that's the most yeah. fun thing about the holidays is just gathering your people, being yeah. in the kitchen, putting out all the food you love. And if disasters happen, I mean, gosh, you know, I mean, there was this another year, I was just thinking about like things gone wrong. Another year where a friend of ours was carving, um, I made a goose and mm. a friend of ours was carving this very big slippery goose as you okay. do after you've had your punch. Um, mm. And it slipped and, you know, there was some knife action in his ER. hand and some blood. And, you know, no, we didn't actually go to the ER. It was okay. fine. It was, there was, but, you know, and it, it, it was like, he was fine. We were fine. And I just can't, 
I, I don't know. It's just like, it's like now we, we laugh about it. We're like, oh yeah, remember the time you carved your thumb instead of the duck? Uh, <laughs> I just feel like your attitude is the most important thing. And as a, as a host, if you can feel okay about just let it come and know yeah. that, you know, you can handle whatever it is, you know, as long as no one's really hurt, you're good. That's good. Now, say I am in a moment where I'm hosting a party and my mind goes blank. Like I've got guests in, and I'm like got dinner to put on the table or I've got the buffet to put out. Like, how do I get out of that mind going blank moment? I think we've all had that. Oh, uh, you're the list, your list. So you always have, this is one thing that I is actually really important. Always write out your menu and keep it somewhere obvious because right. how often have you ever made an entire dish and forgot to bring it out? Like that yes. has, has that happened to all of you? Like I can see, I see Susie and Claire, you guys are nodding, right? Like you're like, oh my God, I forgot to bring out the whatever dip or the thing that you slaved over and it's still in the fridge. So definitely make your list. And then if you go blank, it's right, it's there for you. Um, one other thing actually I want to say, Matt, about just like how you can um, save the day. So say you make a dish and it doesn't come out exactly as you want it to rename the dish because it's all about managing expectations. I have served bitter eggplant salad because it's supposed to be bitter, right? Um, or, you know, things like that. Like you rename that dish and you give people, you alter their expectation of what they're getting. And it it, it really just smooths things over in a really good way. <laughs> we have one question in the chat for Melissa. So we have a, a, a listener who um, has a teenage son what is one recipe that you can recommend from dinner and one that the teenager can make on his own? Oh God, a lot of them. I mean, you, it depends on your teenager, but I would say best way to do that is let them go through the book and let them pick. You know, there's nothing in that book that is beyond their skill level. And the dish that they're going to make successfully is a dish that appeals to them. If they're like, oh, yum, then that's what you should have them make. Love that. Okay, so right now we're in shopping mode for the holidays. We've got um, a few more weeks before our holidays begin. Um, I'm going to go around and start with you, Claire, and like give us one food or kitchen-related gift that maybe you've given or that you just can recommend for our audience today. Claire, you start. Yeah, last year, so very often I give... Um, frozen cookie dough as like a, nice. as, as a gift for someone, because it really is, it, it's so useful. And it's like, they can bake it at their own convenience and leisure and either enjoy it themselves and bake it in any quantity that they want. Um, and, you know, bring it to a holiday party or just enjoy it at home. So it's like a super flexible, like wonderful gift. There's like no work involved, but actually last year I did something a little bit different, which is, um, as a gift for like a, gr a group of family, I made everyone my own brownie mix. So I used like the recipe from dessert person and I got all the ingredients together and like, but separated them and wrote my own kind of instructions on like how to, you know, how to basically take out the ingredients and mix them. And, you know, it was like, add an egg, add two eggs, add, you know, this much, um, melted butter or something like that. Um, so it was sort of a homemade like boxed brownie mix with my own recipe, um, which was great. And it's again, something that like they can make at any time. It's not perishable. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. It can just kind of like sit in the back of a shelf. Um, so that was a great gift that people seem to really, really like. Um, and you can like include, you know, if people want to make it again, you can include the recipe. So um, that, were, that went over really, really well. But if that, you know, if that's not sort of feasible, then I think just like making a big batch of, of cookie dough and freezing it and bringing that over. Brilliant. Yeah. Love great that. Gifts. Susie, what's a good gift that we can give that we, you know, might surprise our, our friends and family? Extra virgin olive oil. 
<laughs> I'm so lazy. I'm like not probably going to take the time to make anything except baklava. I will bring that to friends, but I often will just bring a bottle of good extra virgin olive oil in place of a bottle of wine, I suppose something different, but also very useful. Do you have a country or an origin source of an olive oil that you like? Is there, is there, I, I, this is not a political question. This is yeah. a friends, friendly question. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fine. It's a fine question. I, uh, I may be biased, but uh, the, the three that I love most are Greek, Spanish, and Italian. Yeah. Uh, so those, those are the ones. And, and depending on people's tastes, I think the Greek that I use is very peppery and, uh, but the Italian is a little more fruity and mild. So I kind of know my friends really well and I'll bring, depending on who I'm going to visit, I'll bring something to their taste. So love that. Melissa, a gift, food, kitchen, it could be gear. It could be anything. Um, well, first of all, I love those gifts. I love the idea of bringing somebody olive oil instead of wine. And oh my God, frozen cookie dough, Claire, I'm totally doing that. That's brilliant. Um, but for me, I, I think I'm thinking more in the equipment realm. Um, so, um, okay, a really good microplane, like an actual branded microplane, as opposed to the, I mean, they cost $15, but so many people don't have them and yeah. they are so good. And even if people do have microplanes, chances are their microplane is really old and kind of yes. dull and people don't replace their microplanes. So this is just like a little hostess gift. You can get them in a bunch of colors, tie a big ribbon on it. Um, mini whisk, remember from our demo, um, yeah. was it Sarah or Caitlin who had the mini whisk? And yeah love the mini whisk. Um, I have many of them. So that's a good one. Um, and actually a nice gift that I'm just thinking of right now, playing off of what Susie said, you do a little mini whisk, you do a bottle of olive oil and a nice bottle of vinegar. And then you have a little vinaigrette and some flaky sea salt, right? And then you have like a little vinaigrette starter kit. Love that. I'll add mine in. I, you know, I bought my mom one time, I bought her like five vegetable peelers because literally I went there and they were always so dull. So you have to replace them every three months. They go dull. So true. And people don't. So yes. So then your vegetable peeler and your, uh, and your rasp. Absolutely. Quantity is great for that one. Okay. I'd like to hear about all of your cookbooks. They've been out in the world. And I asked this um, for the Lung family. When I ask it for you, I'm going to start with you, Claire. Now that it's in the world, your fans and friends are cooking from your book and baking. Is there a recipe? Is there a breakout hit? Is there a vital recipe that surprised you from your book? I'd love to hear from all of you. Claire, you're up. Um, I think it's a little early for me to have a sense yet of like what is catching on, if anything. But one thing I just have been seeing like today and the last couple of days is there's um, a thumbprint cookie. It's the first cookie in the cookie mm. chapter. It's really colorful. So I think that has a lot to do with it. It's very eye-catching. Um, it's a raspberry almond thumbprint. And I think most people expect the thumbprint to be like a shortbready kind of cookie, but it's actually kind of a variation on a macaroon. Um, so it's like an egg white cookie, you know, based cookie with almond flour. So there's, it's gluten-free. So it's, you know, really good for like a holiday party. If there's any dietary restrictions, um, it may even be dairy-free as well. So it, it, it works on a couple nice. different levels and it has this, it's filled with a raspberry jam in the center. And before it gets filled, it gets a little dusting of like a mixture of powdered sugar and freeze-dried 
like pulverized raspberry. So it's like light pink and then it has this very ruby red center. So I, I think it's just very visually appealing and it's, it makes sense that that would be like a holiday, a, a choice for people's holiday cookies. Um, so I've just really been seeing that like the last few days, actually like Francis Lamb from Clarkson Potter texted me, like they, he and his family were just making them. Um, and I, you know, so I see it on social media and it's really not a very difficult cookie at all. It's actually pretty simple. So I think that has a lot to do with it too. The like simplicity plus the the color and the looks. Beautiful, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I love freeze-dried fruit. We're working on a story for next month about freeze-dried fruit and baking, cooking with it. Love that. Yes, I mean, uh, it, is, it is a very useful baking tool. Absolutely. Yeah. Susie, we'll get to you. We have a question about your Greek peppery olive oil. Is there a brand? I think we've got a fan of Greek peppery olive oil in this chat. So is there a brand or is there any place we should find it? Putting you on the spot. (laughs) Yes, the Mediterranean dish. I'm sorry. Very shameless plug, but we have our own. So you can check them out on the Mediterranean dish.com. That's you clearly what paid the person in the chat to say this setup. I, I, I have no idea who asked. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> All right. So Susie, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, is there a breakout from Mediterranean dish? Is there is there a recipe that you feel you've seen, you know, jump into oh, your comments, etc.? Yes, there are th- three real quick one and i'm i'm kind of afraid to mention anything baking when claire is here because she's the queen of that but the one that kind of i guess seasonally speaking is coming up a lot on social media right now is an 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 olive oil cake with cardamom and orange people are making that a lot it's very easy nothing sophisticated but also super tender and delicious the other is a very easy chickpea soup with spinach and pocarino romano everyone's making that i did not Love think that. that that would be the one and the uh, and the last one is kind of a unique uh take on couscous it's a sweet couscous in milk almost like a warm cereal that's topped with nuts and you know mm. laced with a little bit of cinnamon and brown sugar or honey which is something i grew up with and uh I'll be making that Christmas morning and somehow people are looking at it and going, oh, this is interesting and also very easy to do. So those those three are happening a lot now. I love that. Now, Melissa, you're writing for the Times every week. You've got your books, but anything that's really popping from Dinner and One that you've seen since you released it? Yeah. Um, so and it's funny because, you know, I think we're all surprised at the dish that pops out like you don't know when you write a cookbook you have no idea, no like, idea. what is going to no be idea. the thing right um so i did this acorn squash recipe it's roasted acorn squash and it has so you you cut the acorn squash and you have like these little cups these little boats um and you don't take the skin off because mm. acorn skin when you roast it is really delicious and it's easy and then you put telegio on top so telegio melty cheese and you have and honey and you do it's like a little honey um you can use any kind of smoky chili like um a, a syrian chili um or an aleppo or just a smoked paprika and um 
it's just, it's like the honey and there's some thyme in there and it's just so simple. And then I have some pickled onions on top, quick pickled onions, thinly sliced red onions. You just um, throw a little lime juice on it and they add a little bit of salt and sugar and they get wilty. So you have all of these flavors and textures. It's really easy. It's so pretty. And I, I am shocked that everyone is making that one, but it's great. I mean, I'm happy. I'm thrilled, but okay. I can guarantee no one thought that would be the, the dish. Um, and then the other one, of course, is a sheet pan chicken dinner. Of course, now that one we knew. So that one is also butternut squash. It's, I guess everyone's cooking squashes right now because it's fall. So yeah, we're still in the fall, not quite in the winter. You're a queen of uh, pickle the onions. You you love using pickles. I it's do. I do. You can make a big that. jar of them. You throw them in the fridge and then you just take them out. They're so easy. It's like 10 minutes. It's so easy. It's such a great thing to add. Okay. We're wrapping up. We have one more question. Um, if you have anything in the chat, drop it now. I want to go around. Start with you, Claire. Give us your New Year's cooking resolution, meaning this is something that you on, on January 1st at midnight you wanna you wanna do for the new year. What's your resolution? Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been recipe developing steadily for cookbooks for so long that I really and I I already have started to to get you know back into the groove of cooking savory, but that's like all I want to cook right now is savory stuff. I love the instant gratification of like savory cooking. It's like you get to make it and then eat it and, and it's sustaining. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love baking. I love dessert, but it's like, you can't survive off of that. And I basically did that for many years. So, and also one of my resolutions is to do more meal planning and prep because I basically haven't done that for the last like four years and it's time to like get myself a little bit organized and set myself up for success and um start having things like cooked grains around you know for when I get because I'm someone that like I don't eat if I'm not hungry and then all of a sudden I'm starving and like ravenous and have to eat something you know in five minutes and and that's where like if I have something you just one thing that's ready to go oh I, I I feel like that breaks the seal and I'm able to prepare something for myself. Um, so that's really a goal and it's, it's not very lofty. It's, it's not that hard. It's just about having a little bit of time to just make, you know, one or two things to have around. Um, so that when, when like the, the hunger strikes, I, I'm not just, I have. you know, I, my, my, my thinking becomes unclear and like, <laughs> I can't, I can't even really like put two words together. So, um, yeah, just being like a little bit more intentional about, making things that I want to eat and having them available. Very smart. I have to shout out my wife, Tamar. She is extremely good at planning. And so I oftentimes enter that zone and there's something made in the fridge. So thank you, Tamar. Shout to you. <laughs> Susie, what is your cooking resolution? All right. Well, I'm a lazy cook, so everything I make has to be very easy. So I don't know that I want to change that about my cooking. I think I'm going to probably keep that going. But I actually got an email from Melissa from the New York Times, and mm -hmm. it said something about give yourself a break or something like that. That was was that from you, Melissa? I think that. Was, <laughs> yeah. And I looked at that. I'm like, yeah, that's my girl. I'm like all for giving yourself a break. I think, you know, when, when January 1st hits, everyone's talking Mediterranean diet. I'm so blessed to already be eating this way. And I think I'm going to continue to lean into that some more and also continue to think about like doing less is <laughs> doing less, like, like giving that. myself a break and, and continuing on with, 
you know, a simpler life, I think in general would, would be really wonderful. And I'm so cooked a lot over the past two and a half years, three years, cooked a lot. And this year we, I'm so blessed because we have now a team that works for the site and I'm not the only one cooking and it's just, it's a blessing all around, but thank you, Melissa, for the reminder. (laughs) Give yourself a break. I love it. I'm leaning into that. Melissa, your new year's cooking resolution. I want to cook more from other people's cookbooks. I love cooking from other people's cookbooks, but I never follow the recipe. Like I'll, I'll open the book and I'm like, oh, I'm going to make that. And then I'm like cooking. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way because I, Susie, you and me, I'm lazy. I'm like, oh my God, okay, I'm not doing that step. I can't, um, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow recipes more faithfully. That is my resolution. I really want to, because honestly, the food comes out better when you listen to the people who know how to cook, right? So it's like, I have plans, I have big plans, all of your cookbooks, um, you know, I mean, especially when I wing it with baking, it's it's not a good idea. So Claire, I'm going to be like following your instructions. <laughs> Susie, I'm going to be every, uh, although I know you, they're, e- they're totally easy anyway, but I'm going to absolutely follow them. Also, Walks of Life, I love that book and I will absolutely follow the recipe. So that's my goal. Absolutely. Great last word there. I just want to thank you all. This is such an honor to talk to all of you. You're titans in our in our industry. You have incredible work and taking the time. Thank you very much. And, you know, happy holidays. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.